about this. This is a basic but awesome message this morning, I think. Uh, but I, I thought I'd just start. I watched a movie. Yes, anybody watch a movie yesterday? I watched a movie. I didn't say first service, what ser- uh, the first question, what movie did you watch? I watched Spider-Man Far From Home because there's a new Spider-Man out and I'm behind on the Spider-Man. So we watched Spider-Man Far From Home yesterday. But I, I've, I've been one to say that the best movies are the movies that have the best stories. There's a lot of reasons why people make movies these days. They don't all have great stories. The good movies are the ones with good stories. And we're living in a time, Spider-Man being one of these, we're living in a time where, where these stories are like there's movies that are grouped together and there's like three, four, ten, fifteen movies that are a part of these universes now. There's the Marvel Universe, there's the Star Wars Universe, there's the Pixar Universe, right? There's, there's all these bigger stories and these movies are all filling in. Now there's streaming shows that tie into the universes, right? And I've talked about this before. One of the things that gets moviegoers excited these days are these Easter eggs, these little things that are hidden in movies that connect them to each other and to the bigger story. I remember years ago when the first Iron Man came out, or the second one, somewhere in there, Captain America's shield. If you were paying attention, you could see Captain America's shield in Tony Stark's lab. And everybody got so excited, right? Oh, Captain America's shield in Iron Man! You know, we had no idea what was coming. There's these Easter eggs. Pixar does this all the time. And I've talked about this before. I, I know we get excited about good story, but I, I want you to be excited about this story, <laughs> I mean, none of this stuff is new. Yeah, it's in media form. Now it's in movies with high def and louder sound than you've ever heard before. But it was all the really good things of story are in the Bible. The Bible is a giant story. It's a story that you're a part of, and it's made up of a bunch of smaller stories. And there's Easter eggs all the way through, and they point us to Jesus. (laughs) I hope you get excited about the Bible. It's amazing. We're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, and I, I thought I'd lean into some of this movie, some of this story stuff. Within all of these bigger stories going on, now it's kind of cool to do prequels, right? Or origin stories. In fact, one of my favorite characters in the movie world is Buzz Lightyear. If you go through our Discipleship Pathway formed, I show a few clips from Toy Story. I love Buzz because we talk about identity. And Buzz is one of these, you see what happens when you have a mistaken identity, you don't know who you really are. (laughs) Well, Toy Story, or or Pixar's coming out with a prequel, right? We're going to learn about the Buzz Lightyear who's the basis for the toy. I mean, it's just this made-up astronaut, but prequel. I'm excited. I hope they do a good job. I like Buzz. If you're into these big stories, these origin stories, I want to invite you as we read John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, I want you to, to hear it, to read it, to enter into it as a prequel, as an origin story. It's the most unique, or- we'll talk about why, the most unique origin story ever. The audacity of John to write the story. <laughs> It's an origin story. But maybe some of you are like, you know, Jeff, I'm from an older generation. I'm not into all this Marvel. I read comics. I don't watch these movies. I got something for you, too. Maybe you don't want to approach it as a prequel. But I was reading in one of the books. I was reading this professor. was kind of, he was going to preach on this passage. And he was like, ah, I'm too heady when I preach. And I want to be able to relate to the people. I don't want to be way above their heads. And so he was doing a lot of extra work. And he was thinking, and it's kind of fun when you're preaching because you get he kind of worked with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was kind of guiding him along. And, and he was reading an article about Westerns, good old-fashioned Westerns, right? Now I'm talking to some of you, right? Old-fashioned Westerns. And he was reading and saying, you know, good old-fashioned Western, and all of them, they kind of have the same kind of thing. The hero always comes from out of town. 
They don't live in town. If the town's in trouble, they come from out of town. And so he's like, this will tell you how old my book was. So he said, I went to Blockbuster. What's Blockbuster? I don't even know. But I went to Blockbuster Video, and I rented four Westerns. And sure enough, all four of them, the hero comes from out of town. So as we enter into John 1 this morning, you can enter it as a prequel, as an origin story. If that's not your thing, enter it as a Western. Because your hero is going to come from out of town. All right? We're entering into the Gospel of John, and I submit to you that John is writing the beginning of this story fully knowing the end. In fact, if you're newer to Christianity, I always tell people the Gospel of John may be the best book to read as you begin, and you won't even know how amazing these first 18 verses are until you've read through the whole thing. Gospel of John's 21 chapters. You've got a week before things go back to total normal, right? You can read three chapters a day and read the whole Gospel of John this week. Maybe you just haven't read the Gospel. Well, read it. You've got, you got time to read the Gospel of John this week. Read it. But when you do, we're going to preach through verses 1 to 18. But when you get to chapter 21, go back and read the prologue to see how amazing this thing is. I mean, John is a brilliant writer. And if you pay attention, you're going to get such an introduction to the book that by the end of this introduction, you're going to have a pretty good idea of what's coming next and what to be expecting and what it all means. Yes, we're in, we're in the series on the church calendar. We have been in Advent. Now we're in Christmas, but we're going to leave the decorations up because there's 12 days of Christmas. And we're going to stay in the season of Christmas. And there's gospel passages that relate as we go through this series. So we're talking about the birth of Jesus, but I do want you to know that the verses we're going to read are way beyond just the birth. It's, it's the full meaning of everything he was and everything he is and everything he did. And it's awesome. One author says, in the prologue to the Gospel of John, we have the overture to the symphony of the whole Gospel. The preface to the greatest story ever told. The introduction to history's central fact. The foreword to the last word and the preamble to the realities most trusted by the worldwide church. This is sacred ground, so pay attention. John chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read through it. I'll make a few comments on a few verses. There's so much in here. Again, if you really want to know what John's saying, just keep reading the gospel. (laughs) He's just introducing you to Jesus. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. So John's writing an origin story about someone who has no origin. That's cool. This is God. He's always been. God created everything through him, through the Word. And nothing was created except through him. In other words, if you and I were able to get the most powerful microscope ever, And we would get down to the molecular level, the atomic level, the subatomic level. And we were looking through the microscope. We would see, made by Jesus Christ everywhere. (laughs) He's the creator. He made everything. Everything comes into existence by him, for him. And verse 4, the word gave life to everything. Now, he didn't just create stuff. He gives life. We're not just inanimate bodies. We have life. We're made in the image of God. God made, and he brought life into the world, and his life brought light to everyone. We'll talk a little bit about light in the darkness here. In verse 5, verse 5, I, honestly, I know we live in difficult times. So for some of you, actually, here's, here's homework for you. I got all kinds of applications. For some of you, memorize verse 5 this week. 
You're stressing out about what's going on. God, are we losing ground? There's so much evil in the world. Is evil taking over? You need to memorize verse 5. Because the light, my friends, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. <laughs> Let that settle into your heart. I know it's hard times. I know it's dark days. But there is a light that is bursting forth in our world, and the darkness can never extinguish it. It's good news. Verse 6, this gospel was written by John the Apostle, but in our Advent series, we were chatting about John the Baptist. John's going to talk about John the Baptist. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. I mean, that's what we're going to, fo- we're going to focus in on belief. John, you read through the gospel of John. He, he's, he's going to tell you at the end, I'm just writing this so you believe. I just want you to believe in Jesus. In fact, in, in a sense, you could say that the gospel according to John is Jesus did it all and believing receives it all. So just believe in Jesus. Verse 8, John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I, I could do a sermon on these verses. Because there's a sense in this little, in this little story about John the Baptist, there's, there's a sense that, that the author, John, is almost dealing with the, two, of the, two of the dangers that we go to. One is we begin to think, we, we begin to think too highly. Don't we? We, do this, we think too highly of ourselves. John, you're not the light. You guys aren't. I'm not the light. Jesus is the light. Don't forget that. But... In the day and age that we live in, it's also getting way too easy for us as human beings to think too little of ourselves. And yeah, yes, you and I aren't the light, but guess what? We were created to point to the light. That's why we're here. Point people to the light. That's really significant. It doesn't have to be a lot of people. It be, just wherever you're, whoever you encounter, point them to Jesus. And you're doing good work. <laughs> Keep reading verse 10. He came into the very world he created. We'll talk about this. This is a fascinating part of the story if we pause to think about it. And the world didn't recognize him. Fascinating. He came to his own people. They, didn't even reje- they, they rejected him. Verse 12, again, this is some of the simplicity. But to all who believe, to all who accept him, again, it's going to echo throughout the Gospel of John. Just believe. Just accept, just trust Jesus. And what is he going to do? He's going to give you the right to become children of God. Come back to that as well. What is is that right? What is that privilege? What does that mean? Verse 13, they're reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Another part of this echoes through the gospel story is how much gift this all is. It's gift after gift. It's grace upon grace, John's going to say. I like to say frequently to myself, because I need to hear it, life is not a game to be won. You and I did not bring in our largest Christmas present from yesterday to compare all you, your love more than me. <laughs> is that real? No, it's, life's not a game. Life is a gift to be lived. And the sooner we learn that, the sooner we will flourish. We'll, we'll talk about that as well. Life is a gift. It all comes from God. Verse 14, and this is the tie-in to Christmas, and I'm probably going to say this way too many times this morning, but I don't care. It's good news. The Word became human and made His home among us. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. You don't need to write it down. I'll say it again. You'll hear it again. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. 
Your translation may say grace and truth. I'll explain to you why both translations are amazingly appropriate. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John the Baptist testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who's far greater than I am. He existed long before me. From his abundance, we have all received, again, gift after gift, grace after grace, gracious blessing, one after another. For the law was given through Moses, and it was a gift, and Moses was cool. But God's unfailing love, his faithfulness, his grace and truth, that alone came through Jesus Christ. We needed Jesus. In verse 18, we'll come back to it at the very end. I love verse 18. I've, I've preached on it before. This is some of, if you know the bigger story, John's having fun with us in verse 18. No one's ever seen God. You know it. We've read the Old Testament. You read through the, no one sees God in the Old Testament. Moses sees the tail end of his glory. Sometimes people see the bottom of his sandals. Sometimes you see the podium he's standing on. No one sees God. And John's just kind of chuckling. He's just a creative writer. No one's seen God. Oh yeah, but the unique one who is himself God, Jesus, the one near to the Father's heart, the only true Son, he's revealed God to us. We have seen God in the person of Jesus. It's awesome. So John is giving us, as I said, an origin story about one who has no origin. Who does John think he is? The audacity to come to you and me and say, well, you know when it all began. I mean, we could get into a fun, hopefully humble, but fun conversation about how old is the world really. <laughs> but let's just say for the sake of this morning and unity, it was, it's, it's old. It's a long time ago. And John says, a long time ago, I know what's going on. And I know who's here and I know what's going on. Jesus was there. And you know what? We as the believing church, we accept that testimony as true. We believe that this is God-inspired truth to us through John. And so we accept it. Yes, John, tell us what it was like at the beginning. Because we know that God was there. Jesus was there. I want to talk a little bit about the Word, right? That's the focal point of this passage. Verses 1 to 2 and verse 18 begin and end the passage by stressing that the Word was and is God and is intimately close to God. And John knows perfectly well he's making language go beyond what's normally possible, but it's Jesus that makes him do it. (laughs) Because verse 14 says that the Word became flesh. The Word became human, became one of us. He became the human being we know as Jesus. That's the theme of this gospel. If you want to know who the one true God is, look long and hard at Jesus. You know, many Jewish teachers have wrestled with questions like this. How can the one true God be both different from the world and active within the world? How can he be remote and holy and detached and also intimately present? How does that work? Well, John tells us how. John says the word became flesh. The Greek word is the logos. The word, it means, it means the idea, the reason, the reflection, the meditation, the self-understanding of God became flesh, became human flesh and blood. God became one of us. Now we're just grasping for metaphors because nothing will do this perfectly, but just different angles. If a biography is the story of the life of a person by another person, and an autobiography is a person's self-explanation and self-interpretation, then we can say that Jesus, the eternal word of God in the flesh, is God's autobiography. (laughs) 
that those who would love to know what God is and who God is and what God thinks and what God wants and what God does and what God is like can look at and listen to Jesus. He's the word. So he explains. (laughs) In fact, Jesus is so central in the New Testament books that we cherish as Christians that the early Christians whose faith and devotion are reflected in these books speak about God but can't do it without reference to Jesus. As you read through the New Testament books, it seems it is inadequate discourse about God to not mention Jesus. You could take that a step further and say it is inadequate worship of God to not mention Jesus. (laughs) Because at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Jesus is the revelation of God. As I was reading through actually the author I was describing who feels like he's often above people's heads, He said, the single most practical description of the meaning of John's word, in my experience, came from a thoughtful woman in the adult Sunday school class at the First Presbyterian Church in New Haven, Connecticut. (laughs) He said, in the midst of our discussion, she said, I think the way a human being's audible words relate to his or her inaudible thoughts, which we very much want to know, is the way that the divine human Jesus relates to the invisible God, whom we very much want to know. The author says, I believe she caught the meaning exactly. And I learned later that this is what the church fathers wrote about, though with many more words. (laughs) We long to know what people important to us are thinking. We get this deeply desired knowledge when they talk to us. We all know how important conversation is. And the great God talks to the human race most specifically and most specially in Jesus Christ. We long to know who God is and what God thinks and what God does. In Jesus, his most personal word, God has spoken to us in the most human way possible, giving us his innermost thoughts and hearts in deeds that are as profound as his words. And the believing human race has experienced deep help ever since. The word became flesh. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. And John is working hard in his gospel to make this clear. And it's been said about the gospel of John. It's, I mean, it's an interesting book, but it, it's, it's like a pool that's safe for a child to paddle in. Just believe. How do, what do you do? You just believe. You'll be born again. <laughs> just believe in Jesus. But if you pay attention, people also say that John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim in. It may be imposing in its structure and ideas, but it's not meant to scare you off. If you pay attention, even when we look at this, even in the prologue, it it tries to make, yes, there's mystery. Yes, it's a little overwhelming, God becoming human, but it makes you feel welcome. John is inviting you in, and as you come closer to this book, as you get to know Jesus, you will not be the first to discover that the friend above all friends, Jesus himself, is coming out to meet you, to make you feel at home, to invite you to sit with him at table, to feast with him. He sees you. He delights in you. So in the shallows of chapter 1, we could just say simply, in Jesus we meet God. It could be that simple. We see in chapter 1 that there's two reasons for Jesus coming. One is to reveal God to humanity, to the creation, to make God known. And the other, and it's pretty clear in these verses, is to make life available for humankind. He knows we're lost in our sin and our death, and he wants to bring us back to life. 
redeem us, make us whole again. So as we go to deeper waters, we allow for a little bit more mystery, and we should be okay with this. In the creeds that have been a part of the church for 2,000 years, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, Christians say who the God we believe in is. And as we practice the creeds, we embrace the mystery. We say with utter confidence that God is Trinity. That's part of the mystery as you read through how the word was God and was with God. What does that mean? Well, we embrace the Trinity. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But if you read through the creeds, we tell mostly the story of Jesus. We tell the story of Jesus because that is the principal key to who God is and what God is doing in the world. It's God's clearest word. So we cling to Jesus. There are some mysteries so transcendent, so sacred, so otherworldly that they cannot be adequately communicated in prose. Only poetry will do. In this part of John chapter 1, as John talks about the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, it's one of those mysteries. So John writes the beginning of his gospel with a poetic meditation upon the incarnation. And what follows the prologue is John's unique telling of the Jesus story. John's gospel is like a vortex, a whirlpool, that if we fall into it, we find ourselves drawn to a single focal point. And if you're awake at all this morning, you know that that focal point is Jesus. Jesus is the full revelation of God. He's the eternal word of God made human. Now, part of why we're just... We're, we're revamp, we're going to, because I want you to embrace the wonder. I mean, this may be the greatest wonder of all. The wonder we long for in our souls is found in the sacred mysteries of the faith. And a return to these mysteries can recapture the wonder. In fact, recapturing wonder is part of the joy of the journey of salvation. I know the world we live in, it's easy to become jaded. It's easy to become bored because we mistakenly think there's no more mysteries to imbue us with wonder. There still are. The incarnation is an eternal fountain of mystery and wonder. And the mystery and wonder of the incarnation has found the beauty that saves the world. Don't rush past. I know we celebrate Christmas every year in the church, but don't rush past it. Don't miss the wonder of the moment. Think about this mystery. Nothing that belongs essentially to the human experience was exempted in the incarnation except for sin, which is what Christ came to save us from. So in Christ, we can say God is born, God grows, God learns, God labors, God sweats, and God sleeps. In Christ, we can say that God, we find a God who weeps, a God who suffers, and most astonishingly of all, a God who dies. But somehow this is good news for us because Jesus truly is God. He truly is divine. And so, as we already read, he's the one that breathed life into everything. And now we find that Jesus, crucified on the cross, risen from the grave, breathes life into death. (laughs) I hope that hits you as good news as that should make you excited. Life into death? You mean I don't need to be afraid of death? Not if you know Jesus. He overwhelms death with his life. He is life. And as John is saying as well, and he's going to unpack in his gospel, he is light. That's why as I was reading, I was trying to help you feel some of the the strangeness of this. 
to deepen the mystery and the horror of what we read in John 1, John tells us that when the creative word finally does make his most personal visit into creation in his incarnation, I mean, the, the, the one who created everything is going to make the most personal visit to his creation as Jesus of Nazareth on planet Earth. I mean, really, you know, as a baby, with other human beings. And human beings of all, we, we are the ones made in his image. We are the ones who should have the capacity to see him and understand who he is and know him most fully. What does John say? They conspired to eliminate him by crucifixion, right? He's planting seeds for what is to come. He enters into his own creation and they reject him. I mean, the Jewish people, his own chosen people, don't recognize him. God sends the word into the world and the world pretends it doesn't know who he is. And if you read through the Gospel of John, you'll see this is a major theme that runs all the way through. It's a central problem of the story. Jesus comes to God's people and God's people do what the rest of the world does. They prefer darkness over light. This is part of the beauty of the Jesus story, and it's what keeps drawing. I mean, just come back to Jesus again because he's so amazing. And he's always doing things that, oh, the wonder. I didn't know he could do that. I've even read that before. I've never seen that before. Jesus, you're amazing. Jesus enlightens us in the most surprising and unexpected ways. You want to talk about a good story? Jesus uses the very triumphs of his foes for their own defeat. He compels their dark achievements to serve his own ends and not theirs. You know where the story goes. John knows where the story goes. They nail Jesus to the tree, not knowing that by the very act they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave Jesus a cross, not knowing that he would make it a throne. What a king! What a God! Dorothy Sayers says, The incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, but he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life, the cramping restrictions of hard work, lack of money, into the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. Have you been there? Jesus knows it. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us. And this is what Dorothy Sarah says, and he thought it was well worth his while. That's why I say all the time, how do you, I mean, I know we wrestle, we wrestle with value and significance in the world we live in today. But what, what do we say? What, what assigns value to anything? It's what somebody's willing to pay. And Jesus was willing to pay this for you. To leave the comfort and the peace of heaven and to enter in the brokenness of earth. To be as helpless as a baby. To go to the cross. And Jesus did it out of joy and love for you. Never forget that. The Christmas is the beginning of the story. And remember, I pause there, verse 5, John says, the darkness can never extinguish this light. G.K. Chesterton once said that if one studies church history carefully, there are about five different times when it looks, when it looks as if the church has gone to the dogs. But that in the end, all five times, it was the dogs who died. There is darkness in our world. Yes, there is. But John declares that the darkness cannot and will not overcome the light. The light is dawn and it's a new day. Never forget it. 
And this is the true light. This is the light that we've all been longing for. It's the, it's the light that has the power and capacity to enlighten every single person. And back to my original Western analogy, our hero comes from out of town, right? In Christ Jesus, the light that we need comes entirely from without us. You and I, if we're honest with ourselves, can say there's not enough light in my own heart to lighten my own way. I need light from somewhere else. I've made a mess of things. And I'm just stuck in the dark. And I need some light outside of myself. Well, here comes our hero. (laughs) Riding into town. And he's full of light. We're not surprised by the darkness. We know the way we've been living isn't sustainable. But we don't know what else to do. We need an alternative. And John says, well, we found a better way. The Jesus way. Confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And believe. It's that easy. Repent of your sins and believe. And you can come on in. Because Jesus is the light that enlightens the whole world. He's illuminating everything. And then you and I, this is where we begin to learn life. There's too much inward focus in our world today. And yes, I understand that none of us will ever be as perfect as Jesus. He's sinless and we are all sinful. But he remains our standard. He is always the light by which we evaluate ourselves. If you want to know true life, you just keep trying to avail yourself to allow the Spirit of God to lead you closer to Jesus. And the more you can learn to live the way Jesus lived, the more you'll learn what life is all about. The more you'll know the deep sense of purpose and peace that comes with a life lived for God. The darkness of sin, hate, fear, and death is overwhelmed, overcome by light. The light of God that leads the world out of the darkness it is languishing in is a human life. It's not a concept. It's not just some random religion. It's not something theoretical. In his human life, Jesus is giving us a way of life that makes life livable again. You say, I've wrecked my life and it's not livable. I believe you. But Jesus can make it livable again. If you let him, he'll do that. Because the light overwhelms the darkness and the darkness does not get to continue to dominate the human race. Jesus has given us another way. And read through the Gospel of John. There is a light emanating from his life and from his teaching. And he is showing you and I how to get out of the darkness. It begins with belief. We trust. Yes, Jesus, lead me. And then we follow and then we learn so much more than we ever imagined. And through all of this is invitation. Invitation and love. Verse 4, if you go back and read it, it seems to be the first place of invitation. It's almost like John is saying, You came from the Word, so come back to Him. You were made for Him, so come home. Remember who you really are. And the result of this reunion will will be more than just human existence. It will be a flourishing life, a deep and meaningful life. I mean, I know I hear this phrase a lot. I'm I mean, maybe even from people leading up to Christmas, right? We get so busy with all the details. How are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm not thriving, but I'm surviving. Well, here's the thing. In Christ, you can stop just surviving and start thriving. You can start flourishing in Jesus. You can enter into what the Bible calls the seventh day rest of God. God creates, the word creates, and then he rests on the seventh day. And as I've studied the Bible, and I've talked about this before, but I think the best way of it, what does it mean to enter into that rest? It means to find yourself in a a way of living in Jesus where you have both peace and purpose. 
You and I know what it means to have peace, but no purpose, right? That's 47 straight hours of, of binge-watching Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or something. whole lot of peace, no purpose. What am I doing? What did I just do with my life? But you and I also know what it means to have a whole lot of purpose and no peace. I got to get something done. I got to get something done. I got to get something done. No peace. Well, imagine, imagine a way of living where you have unbelievable peace and unbelievable purpose. You're not just surviving, you're thriving. In verse 12, here's the invitation. If you believe in Jesus, you get to enter into the family of God. You're a child of God. Do you understand how amazing that is? You! Me! I know what we've done, and Jesus has come on in. And what is flourishing as a child? What's the right? What's the privilege? Well, I talk about, my way of talking about it is this. The privilege is if you follow Jesus, you become a child of God. He loves you. He delights in you. You have nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to prove, and no one to please. You are accepted into his family. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are restored. You are redeemed. All this hiding and pretending is gone. You get to be who you were always meant to be. All this fear is gone because you know you're valued and you're loved. You're not performing anymore. You're just operating. Because life's not a game. You don't have to beat other people. It's a gift. And so you just receive grace upon grace upon grace. That's good news. That's a flourishing life. The last thing John tells us in these final verses is that through Jesus Christ, grace and truth happened. (laughs) It happened. Jesus became the loving presence that transforms and brings new life to those who see how much they need it. And John, John's phrase, full of grace and truth, this is why I think however you want to translate it, either way is good. This phrase, full of grace and truth, is exactly synonymous with ancient Israel's frequent celebration of the Lord God's steadfast love and faithfulness. I mean, the Hebrew and the Greek kind of parallel each other. You can say his steadfast love and faithfulness. You can say his grace and truth. And I was reading, you guys, if you've been a part of our church for a while or gone through our discipleship pathway, you know I love to talk about love as a calibration of grace and truth. This is one of the passages that I root that theological foundation in. And I was doing a little bit more study this week, and I came across a new way of thinking about it. I like this. With the word grace, one thinks of the wide horizontal beam of the cross and of the wide outstretched, world-embracing arms of the all-merciful, all-compassionate God, which you could say is the major longing of the human heart, to be embraced by our Heavenly Father. And with the word truth, one thinks of the vertical beam of the cross going down deep and up high to suggest the power of straight, real, honest truth, which you could say is the major, major longing of the human mind. This truth is powerful enough to support the wide horizontal beam of God's grace that stretches around the world. And it all comes together in Jesus. Grace upon grace. Well, one final picture to give you uh, before you go. Something to think about. Uh, One of my first trips, I did missionary work in Azerbaijan years ago. Almost two decades ago now, which is crazy. And I had a layover in London. It's the only time I've ever been in London. I had a 10-hour layover. I don't know if you've ever been on one of these trips where you're flying somewhere else, but it's like the middle of the night in America, and you're kind of like totally jet-lagged, but you're like, I'm in London. I've got to get out and see London. 
And so I can't, I honestly can't remember. I know I went to Buckingham Palace, but I was such a daze. I'm not sure if I went to Trafalgar Square or not. I'm not sure. I don't remember. I have no idea. I didn't have a cell phone back then to take a selfie. So, but if you ever go there, this is what's a Trafalgar Square. This this is statue. And I was doing a little bit of reading about this. You see the statues way up high. It's way, I mean, you see the people, it's way up high. You can't see the statue up there. I mean, it's almost like the artist's work is wasted. Nobody gets to appreciate the fine work of the carving. So at one point, I don't know if it's still this way, but at one point they made a replica of the statue and put it down on the ground so people could actually see the statue. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's, it's getting us there. I mean, that's Christmas. That's the incarnation, God himself entering into human flesh and blood. God himself making himself known. I hope you feel a little bit of the greatest wonder of all and the greatest story of all that God has entered into our midst. So I want to I leave this, and I hope this continues to get you excited. I want to just read three passages because the Bible will say it better than I can. But just, just listen. Just embrace the wonder that this is your Savior. This is Jesus. This is your Lord. This is how the author of Hebrews begins his letter. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. Listen to this. Verse 3. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. That's the word of God. (laughs) Made flesh. What does Paul say? I mean, they're all trying to grasp for words. That's why poetry helps. Paul writes a little poem in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. I mean, I kind of said this, but I want you to hear this. Jesus isn't only, he's not just the author of creation. He's the telos. He's the, he's the purpose. He's the meaning of life. If you're drifting through life, if you don't know why you're here, what's your purpose, give Jesus a fresh look and you may just find everything you're looking for in him. Life is for Jesus. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. That's his power. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning. He's supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. Listen to verse 19. This is This is in some way Paul trying to say what John says in chapter 1, verse 14. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Dwell in Christ. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He's both the creator and the redeemer. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. One final verse. This will take us back to John 1, 18. Remember I told you the Old Testament, no one sees God, and then John's having fun with this. No one sees God, but we've seen him. Paul basically says the same thing in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 4, verse 6. 
For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul and John are having no one's seen God, but we've seen him when we look at Jesus. The Word became flesh. It's good news. So at long last, because of Jesus, we know what God is like. If the mystery of God is a thousand-piece puzzle, the picture on the cover of the box is the face of Jesus. The Word is translated into a human being, the very person of God. So now we understand who God is. Into our world of death, God has spoken the Word of life, and it's the Word of Jesus. Into our world of darkness, God has spoken the word of light. The word is Jesus. Into our world of sadness, God has spoken the word of joy. The word is Jesus. Into our world of despair, God has spoken the word of hope. And the word is Jesus. Into our world of injury, God has spoken the word of pardon and healing and forgiveness. And the word is Jesus. Into our world of hate, God has spoken the word of love. That word is Jesus. Oh, come and adore him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, our hearts are full. I mean, we are just dipping our toes in the water of your majesty, of your glory, of your beauty, of your love. Oh, we are too easily entertained and distracted. Would we this week be awakened? Would we recapture the wonder? Jesus, we're going to pray to you. We're going to talk to you. And would we even be reminded in our own, we living out our, you entered into humanity and you lived this life for us so we could have life. We destroyed our own and you give us new life. Would we awaken to the wonder of who you are and would we live lives worthy of our calling and would we, would we awaken every day excited to praise you and worship you and learn from you because you are amazing, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.